Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology. I am your host, Dr. Dina Valachi, president of the AANA. Thank you for tuning in. It is my pleasure to welcome Scott Becker, founder and publisher of Becker's Healthcare. Becker's offers a portfolio of leading cutting edge business and must read news and information for leaders across the U.S. healthcare industry. Welcome to the podcast, Scott, and please tell us more about yourself. Well, Dr. Valachi, thank you so much for having me. What a great privilege to visit with you. So I have two core backgrounds, but first, thank you to the AANA and what CRNAs and nurse anesthetists, nurse anesthesiologists do in our country. Thank God for your group and, and, and for the entire community of nurse anesthetists. So I'm by background, a, a lawyer by background. If you're, you know, I, I have to say within the first 30 seconds of talking, because it's natural for a Harvard person to say that. I'm a Harvard Law School graduate. It's so embarrassing. I've spent my life sort of straddling two careers. I am a lawyer at a large firm where I ran the national healthcare practice for a very long time at McGuire Woods, and then probably more prone to your audience. I founded something called Becker's Healthcare 30 plus years ago, and it's core in hospitals and health systems, surgery centers, orthopedic and spine health, and a number of other areas in healthcare. We've intended to be sort of the business briefing for healthcare, and now we've got 80 to 100 employees, 30 riders. We hold events and so forth, and try to be right in the middle of the intersection sort of healthcare and business. We're clearly not clinical experts, so we might report on what clinical experts are saying, but we're not clinical. We're very much in this sort of like, what are the trends, what's going on, what's the business of healthcare? My background was lawyer, so at some point early on, there was more of the legal type piece of it, but it's really the business of healthcare. And it's been a great opportunity for me to, and great fun, to connect with magnificent people across the spectrum of healthcare. So great fun. And Dina, Dr. Valachi, thank you so much for having me and amazing what you do. Oh, thank you so much. Well, Scott, it's clearly you have the pulse on the critical issues facing the American healthcare. Please paint a picture for me and for us about the challenges you have identified and healthcare providers have been facing as we move into the third year of COVID-19 pandemic. Certainly. So I'll sort of walk through seven or eight issues that I hear about constantly, and none of these will be a surprise to you or to your listeners and so forth. I'll start with the workforce, short and long-term issues. Short-term, just people under siege with COVID daunting numbers. We're talking at the middle of January, we're at another Omicron surge. But really, through the last couple of years, daunting and exasperating shortages of healthcare workers at every level. Physicians, nurses, anesthesia, staffing, respiratory therapists throughout the entire ecosystem. Shortages in all kinds of ways. And those are short-term challenges, but they're also long-term challenges. Most of us know there were challenges well before the pandemic. And those have been exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, we, we do an amazing job. 330 million people, people living longer. We just have, after a couple countries, after China and India, the largest country in the world, there's just big needs. And we're used to having lots of access. So we start with sort of shortages across the board. Obviously, nurse, anesthetists, nurse anesthesiologists have been trying to solve, key part of solving some of those shortage problems for a long period of time. But then I look at five to six, seven other issues. We have coverage issues. There's still 8 to 10% of the population that's not covered directly by insurance. But even if we get that coverage taken care of, which I think most people have come to the conclusion, whether Republican or Democrat, that we should take care of that coverage, then you start to address the real problem, which is an access issue. And the access issue goes to the short and long-term shortages of workforce and how we develop workforce. We talk about residency programs being too long, it taking too long to become a doctor, too long to become a nurse, too long to become a lot of things. And I know those are very challenging issues. A lot of people disagree. I was on the phone with somebody the other day who's a pelvic female medical specialist, 
you know, she didn't get out of school and residency and fellowship. So she was 33, 34. You know, it's too long. It's too long to get too much debt. But we need a way to figure out how to develop more doctors, nurses, if we're going to handle this coverage issue, coverage and access. Then we look at hospitals and health systems dealing, obviously, with COVID-19. And that almost goes without saying today. But it's this concept of COVID-19 plus taking care of patients, plus this dual track. How do you take care of COVID while taking care of the rest of the patients and also developing strategy for the future? And had a fascinating discussion a couple days ago with Dr. Wardy Glimcher. And Dr. Glimcher, whose name might not be a household name, is the CEO, physician scientist, CEO of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. She talked about sort of one of the challenges out of the pandemic is how many people didn't do their colon screenings or mammographies or pap smears during the last two years and how the greatest still after 50 years on the war of cancer still the greatest greatest weapon we have is early detection and so you talk about sort of all this missed early detection from not able to take care of people like we should be taking care of them through the pandemic so we look at sort of this dual track taking care of covid and taking care of all the other needs so we've talked so far workforce coverage and access COVID plus this dual track. We come back again. Last year was the least number of hospital bankruptcies in a very, very long time. And that's a good sign that there were lower hospital bankruptcies. But partly that was because we had different subsidies than we usually don't have from the federal government, the Cures Act and other things. And so as we move past those subsidies, hospitals and health systems were very, very concerned about what happens to the profit and loss statements, their ability to continue to make margin. My own perspective is there's just not enough doctors and nurses in the country. MedPAC trying to freeze the wages of doctors, freeze reimbursement of doctors. And this is just, to me, that's just very backward. This is not a zero-sum game. We need enough money for doctors, nurses, healthcare staff, healthcare workers, and so forth. If not, it causes all these crazy things in our economy. If you're trying to artificially hold down wages, it causes all kinds of other troubles on the other end. But sort of reimbursement, business dual tracking, the other things that we're thinking about and hearing a lot, I'll talk about three or four other quick trends. Then Dr. Vlach, I'll turn it back to you. Digital transformation, and we see this every place, everybody taking different steps to get better at digital experience, digital transformation, customer experience, how you deal with patients, how you work through patients from small practices to large practices, big systems, trying to get better at this so people have a better and better patient experience. The next issue, competition and strategy, just constant changes in the competitive and strategic sort of framework that hospitals and practices work under and how they approach the market, whether surgery centers, hospitals, practices, just constant changes in competition and strategy. The two other issues I'll touch on very quickly are health equity issues, obviously exasperated during the pandemic, a big light shown in them, and people trying to stay focused on how do we improve health equity in our country, in a country where you do have very different distributions of wealth, and how do you improve health equity in a nation where, you know, Everybody would be wealthier than they were 50, 100 years ago, but there are huge distinctions in wealth and taking care of health equity. And then finally, an issue that is more and more at the forefront is sort of behavioral health issues. You know, the pandemic, again, so many things that are problems and were always problems had a bigger light shown on them during the pandemic. And I would put behavioral health in that category, just because it further exasperated and highlighted everybody's got behavioral health issues. And it's just a matter of all of us are on some continuum of where we are in a behavioral health spectrum from very significant to getting by. And so those are just a quick summary. Hopefully gave us something to talk about. Dr. Vlachi's six to 10 issues we think about and we hear about readily from health system leaders that we're talking about. So thank you. 
Well, Scott, thank you for that, because you are on point. There is the biggest thing that we see, too. I mean, same thing, access to care. Do we have enough providers? The impact of COVID? What does reimbursement look like for everybody? How do you do parity in the population with healthcare and provide that service? It's no longer a really political issue. We just have serious critical issues that we all need to come together. And, you know, as healthcare providers, we have endured the challenges on the front lines. And it has come at a time when stress and burnout among our healthcare providers is at a critical point for all of us. You know, what do you think are some of the broader impacts of these mounting tensions and how should we address the burnout in order to entice people to come back into the profession, stay into these professions? I mean, it's really critical. So what do you think? Certainly. I think at the end of the day, there are two big things that people talk about. And I think one is really the answer and everything else is very secondary. The reality is that we have to address the issue of the number of physicians and nurses and healthcare providers that we have, that without addressing that issue, you really can't address capacity issues and burnout issues, and that everything else is secondary. People talk about all these nice things like concierge services, massages, break rooms, stuff like that. But the reality is, if you can't give people the amount of work hours they want, and they're working 78 hours a week because there's not enough doctors and nurses, and you see that particularly through upticks in COVID and problems, if you don't have enough providers, everything else is impossible to solve for. And so I think what happens is so much of the political discussions around the polemics on one side or the other, Medicare for all on one side, which is very hard to make sense of because only 14, 50% of the people are covered by Medicare. And the other side is let the free market do everything. And that doesn't make any sense either when 50% plus of people are covered by Medicare and Medicaid. It's already largely a government, partially a government system. So the truth of everything is somewhere in between. It's more fun to talk about these polemics, about these big soundbite issues. But what we really need is, yes, technology helps a lot. We've seen that with telemedicine and other things to sort of give people more time, more flexibility, and leverage people better. Obviously, everybody pressing at the top of their license helps a lot as well. At one point, it was sort of a territorial fight. Now people recognize there's just not enough doctors or anesthesiologists in a lot of places as a perfect example that 25, 30 states allow nurse anesthetists, nurse anesthetists practice by themselves because they need to. But at the end of the day, addressing this issue of burnout, you cannot do it without enough providers, nurses, doctors, or finding ways to make sure people are taken care of. You just, you just can't do it. It reminds me like I was a young lawyer working eight hours a week, and the bosses would say to me, you know, you have as much freedom to do whatever you want. And you really don't if you're working eight hours a week. You just don't. There's just, it's an impossible way to live life if you're working that much. And if we don't have enough capacity for our aging population, 380 million people, you know, more and more of the focus should be around how do we create more graduate medical education? How do we create more nurse anesthetists? How do we create more providers? How do we help do those things? And, and you can't make it attractive if people know they're going into life where people are so stressed or so unhappy. I mean, one of the happiest professions in the country is that of CRNAs which is an amazing thing. But how do you create workforces and environments where people don't have to live their job 24-7, where people can have a life, thrive with their life, and also, you know, have a life outside of it as well? So I think it's hard to do without creating enough capacity. So Scott, I agree with what you said. I think we do need more people. You can only stretch the people there so much, and you can't fix that problem without increasing the number of people. And I do think we need to come together 
and figuring out other ways to attract people into the profession. You did mention the education. We need to work at top of our licensures. We need to definitely look at the cost of education and the overburden of the student debt that people have. I do think there's an opportunity for everyone to come together and to come up with a solution to bring people into the profession instead of now you see people leaving in droves. So I definitely do think it's something we need to address for sure. And to transition our conversation, you and I have had conversations most recently in your podcast about the role and the value of certified registered nurse anesthesiologists, CRNAs, in today's healthcare. CRNAs bring high value anesthesia care where quality and safety are emphasized and healthcare costs are reduced. So CRNAs were suited to address these key concerns that you've brought up in the healthcare system and public policy principles of effectiveness, efficiency, and equity. So like in all 50 states, for instance, we have provisions to support CNA practice without physician supervision. That being said, from your perspective, where do you see we can leverage with the insurance industry on non-provider discrimination as well as surprise billing issues? These are great, great questions. I mean, the surprise billing thing is a very complicated issue. It's one of these issues that's a soundbite is very appealing to people when they hear, well, you can't surprise bill. Most of us know that in healthcare, that this is less about the consumer and more about insurance company leverage with providers. Because the, the no surprise billing often ended up meaning that insurance companies could keep you capped at a certain fee if they didn't have a contract with you and so forth. So it, it really, it became a very bastardized issue that was positioned as a populist issue for people, there's obviously a lot of room for that because surprise billing for a consumer who ends up in financial trouble is an issue. But we really know that the power behind getting that passed came from the insurance companies who wanted to make sure they didn't have to get surprised by bills or have to pay out-of-network bills. And out-of-network is the only leverage that many providers have traditionally had if an insurance company won't give you a decent contract then you would go out and network with them so they forced to actually come to the table with you. And what happens is, as insurance companies have become more duopoly or monopolistic, you know, in the old days, somebody described to me a great market is one where there were five different insurance companies and nobody owned you in that market. And today we know once you get past Medicare or Medicaid, you typically have one primary insurance company in whatever state you're in and then a secondary and everybody else has such small amounts of the market that you don't really have leverage with them. you got to do contracts with them. And what's happened is the surprise billing thing is very complicated. And I don't mean to be glib about this, but you could almost call it the Protect Insurance Companies Act, which don't need protecting. I mean, the insurance company, if I went back 30 years ago, I could see both sides of this issue. And people would say, oh, my God, Hillary Keller is going to kill the insurance companies. And if I've learned anything in the last 30 years is nothing hurts the insurance companies. They seem to mint money through good and through bad. You know, the pandemic was one of the great examples of this. The insurance companies just cleaned up because many of them were on capitation. Procedures weren't being done. Anybody who was on capitation just made a fortune through the pandemic. And it really was a very perverse situation, but an educational situation. The surprise billing is absolutely, there are some things done in it to try and protect providers a little bit, but it really is a pro-insurance act and it's a horrible, horrible situation. But it comes out of sort of, it comes out of soundbite politics is, is people trying to show we're doing something for the consumers and we all know that the reality is that the money behind it was the insurance companies and it's a horrible, horrible thing. Now it, and, and I don't want to overstate it because there's an issue of like, Yes, protecting patients from bankruptcies, but that's not what this act is about. And how do you leverage that? You have to leverage that 
politically as well as anything. It's the advocacy in D.C., it's advocacy at states, it's sort of what the ANA has done throughout the country to allow nurse anesthetists to practice independently. There's so many examples of this in life where the right thing becomes the needed thing. Obviously, you had all these people fighting nursing anesthetists practicing independent for so long. And then, of course, as people had shortages of anesthesiologists, then, of course, people were like, oh, we should let nurse anesthetists practice alone. There's a great phrase on it that I'm missing right now. But need drives things to end up getting fixed. And that's what happened with nurse anesthetists being able to practice independently. I don't know how to leverage the insurance companies. They are so powerful, of course. It is what it is. But how do you leverage that with surprise billing, with some of these other issues? And it's not discrimination, which I think is probably moves in the right direction over time. But insurance companies still have so much control. So they start denying something, then just the fight to kind of get paid is brutal. You come up with a coverage initiative, a coverage memorandum, unilaterally. It's, it's very challenging because they have so much power. And it's sort of like you, you went to this very strange spot where in many places in the country, there are providers that prefer to get paid by Medicare because their commercial payers are so bad. In the old days, that was never the case because commercial payers subsidized everything. Now commercial payers are very challenging, and commercial payers have tremendous power in the big four or five insurance companies. Two of the biggest insurance companies are of the six, I mean, United Optum, CVS, Aetna, are two of the six largest companies by revenue in the entire country. I mean, people don't sometimes recognize that, but... It means so much money flows through the insurance company. It's not a knock on United. It's not a knock on CVS Aetna, both great companies. But, I mean, they literally are two of the, people don't recognize, they think of Apple, Amazon, Fang, you know, Netflix, those things. But two of the largest six companies in the country are United and CVS. It's a fascinating situation. There's a lot of leverage there, a lot of strength they have. I totally agree with you, Scott. When you look at the vertical fertilization that's been going on and, and the horizontal, and you wonder about what the DOJ says, they haven't really spoken much on it. I know they're looking into it. And you look at now you have anesthesia companies where you've had the insurance say, you know what, you're not a network, we're not going to agree with you. And then that makes them in violation of their contracts that they have with the big hospitals because you have to be in contract. So we've seen these heavy-duty negotiations and pinches on our anesthesia reimbursement for our companies. So it is interesting, and it is, like you said, they are a behemoth, the insurance companies, and how do you leverage that across the board? I would love to see everyone in the medical healthcare system buying together and step up and say enough's enough. That would be great. But that being said, um, with our published research, over overwhelmingly confirms that CRNAs are cost-effective to healthcare systems. As costs increase or continue to escalate and access to care remains out of touch for many CRNAs are a solution for those areas. What recommendations can you make for a better healthcare model or structure? Sure. And, and that's a tough question, Dr. Vlach. It's a little bit above my pay grade. And so what I could do is simplify. What I could simplify is that we need, obviously, coverage for everybody we need to improve access and to get coverage and access, we need more nurses and doctors. We just need more. And we need more in lots of spots. We need it like people talk about how, you know, what you always hear is we need more primary care. And yes, you need more primary care. But one of the things that's unstated and it's unpopular to state is we also need in a lot of places a ton more specialists too. Healthcare is, I don't want to say it's so messed up because it's not. And we've got 330 million people in the country overall does an amazing job of taking care of such a huge population. People have to put in context that after India and China, we've got the third largest population in the world. And overall, we've got tremendous access compared to other places. But to have the access we want to have, 
we need more specialists, we need more primary care, we need more nurses, we need more every allied health professional. We know that if you need a specialist in our country, whether you're rich, poor, white, black, whoever you are, you have to know somebody to get the right specialist. If the access problems are dramatic and getting worse, and then you look at the next level is, another issue is primary care or specialist in rural and urban centers. You know, it's just incredibly challenging. So in any event, I don't know the right way to solve the problem. I know the one issue that I know that's not talked about enough is this issue of we just need more doctors and nurses and need find ways to create more doctors and nurses. We have solved so many of our problems over the course of history through immigration and through nurses and doctors immigrating here. We need to continue to encourage that. But we also need to encourage and grow med schools, nursing schools, residency programs, make them shorter, make it easier, just a little bit easier, a little bit less debt, and so forth to get from point A to point B. Because we can't solve the problems without creating the right supply of doctors and nurses in our country. Thank you for that. And it's interesting because we always were known as the best kept secret. So with that, we're trying to change that image to let people know we're out there. So a question I have for you is what can healthcare administrators, patient communities that serve us, that we serve, what can they do to make us more visible out there? How do we make ourselves more visible to people? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, the AANA, I think it's done a remarkable job over the last several years of building the brand of the AANA and of nurse anesthetists and nurse and CRNAs. I mean, when when I went back 30 years ago, when I really started being involved in healthcare in my mid 20s, you know, I knew a few CRNAs, but they were so few and far between, and their roles were so sort of limited. And and once in a while, you'd have a CRNA with a big role, and it would be sort of eye opening. Now you have CRNAs pervasively throughout lots of the healthcare community in just a much more important role and really just so critical to care in so many places. I mean, you've got this very juxtaposed world where, and this is why we have so much trouble in rural medicine, is that most doctors and their families, when they get out of school today, they gravitate to the 20 largest cities in the country. And so what it's led to is that in the larger cities and not necessarily in the poorer parts of the larger cities, there's better supply of doctors and nurses. When you get outside of the 20 largest cities in the country, you've got horrible shortages. And when you look at that, there's the nurse anesthetists have filled so much of that role, but you want really nurse anesthetists filling the role every place, in the 20 largest cities and every place else, so that you end up in a spot where care is just more affordable, it's more accessible. You know, people want to be taken care of. They, they, they want to see the nurses, they want, to, they want to talk to them, they want to be with that person as they're getting taken care of. So I don't know that there's any silver bullet to it, but I do see where how it's changed so dramatically in, let's say, the, everything other than the 20 largest MSAs in the country and changing there as well. Well, thank you, Scott. That was really informative. The last question I have for you is, as we head into the new year, data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, U.S. News World and Report, identified nurse practitioners as the best healthcare job for 2022. In a list of 29 best healthcare jobs, as ranked by U.S. News, nurse anesthetist is ranked number eight, which is good. With the greatest demand of hiring right now, jobs are scored by seven component measures, including 10-year growth volume, 10-year growth percentage, medium salary, employee rate, future job perspective, stress level, and work-life balance. So with this, what are your thoughts with all this going into the next decade? 
or so. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. There's so many things that go into having a great profession, a great job, and whether people are self-actualizing, are they loving what they do, do they love what they do, and then with loving what they do, can they also contain themselves so they can have some work-life balance and some boundaries and so forth? And it's it's a great challenge. I mean, obviously, the CRNAs are, it's fascinating to me in the medical profession, you know, this concept, there are different jobs where you're, you know, where you're seeing a patient 30 times a day as a primary care physician, and it's a prescription for burnout. There's other jobs where there's this balance. You're seeing patients, but you're not spending 30 minutes talking to a patient. It's why you've moved to this, where so many psychiatrists, they just don't want to talk to patients. They want to prescribe drugs, but they don't want to have to do talk therapy, and they've left that. There's really been a division of life where psychologists, other social workers do that, and many psychiatrists don't want to talk to patients at all. And it seems to me that CRNAs find that they have somewhat of this great balance of having enough interaction with patients, but not so much that they're sitting with the patient for an hour talking to them where they're burnt out. This is just it's just the reality of life is that hear from doctors that don't want to be talking to patients for eight hours a day. They, they just too much. It's exhausting over a 30 year career. So CRNAs have carved out. There's two things or three things that are magnificent about being a CRNA. One is that many CRNAs have, have got some control over the profession. They've got some control over their day and they've got some level of work-life balance. Like it's not, obviously this changes if you're running a practice, but for many CRNAs, you can, one of the things that works for people, sometimes it's satisfying, sometimes it's not, is that they could do a shift for eight hours, they could do a shift for four hours, they could do a shift for four hours, but they're not necessarily taking the work home for them. So one of my closest friends is an anesthesiologist, and he's one of my happiest friends that's a doctor. And partly the reason is, like a CRNA, he is generally, he happens to be a he, is not taking his work home with him. He's done with his shift, he's done. He gets to relax for at least that moment, generally. And it's a magnificent ability to have work-life balance. It's not typical in, you know, certain specialists that are on call all the time, certain primary care doctors that are seeing patients 10 hours a day, have to see 30 patients a day, and like after 30 years, of course they're burnt out. You can't not be burnt out. But so much of this comes back to if you want to have work-life balance, a CRNA is obviously, you know, you and I have talked about a daughter that I have that's looking at, you know, taking her MCATs tomorrow. You know, it, it'll be different by the time this is recorded. It'll be it'll be out. It will already see how she's different. She's trying to figure out, does she want to be a CRNA? Does she want to be a physician assistant? Does she want to be a doctor? And trying to measure, you know, work-life satisfaction and, and all the kinds of issues that come with that into what will be, what will work for her. You know, and it's, it's a fascinating perspective. But I, I find the, I mean, the CRNA community I find it to be just a fascinating and magnificent community. I talk to people like yourself and to other CRNAs that are complete leaders in the profession, and it's just as a magnificent pleasure, whether they're running the trade associates or working with the trade associations, or they're working with advocacy groups, or they're running practices. And then you've got, obviously, lots of CRNAs. That The beauty of many professions is, I find in professions, the people that are the happiest have chosen what they want to do, and they could choose... I want to be a CRNA, and I want to be a leader. I want to be running a practice. I want to be running an organization. I want to be running the operating room. I want to be running the system for the hospital, whatever it might be for the surgeon. But you could also choose as a CRNA, and either choice is great. I want to plug in, and I want to make a living. 
this is a job I want to have. I don't want to be a leader. The reason I chose to do this, as opposed to being a, a neurosurgeon, is I want to be able to go home at the end of the day and be done. And, and the, the happiest people I find, it's not one or the other. It's that you've chosen what is right for you. And so the beauty of being a CRNA is you could choose. I want to be a complete leader on a national level. I want to be a leader of a practice. Or, no, at this point in my life, I just want a job. I just need a job. I need to make a great living. I need benefits. I want to take care of people. I want to see people. And I want to enjoy it. But the beauty of the profession is you could choose. You could choose what you want to make of it. And I think that's a magnificent thing. And it's probably one of the reasons why there's so much job satisfaction. You know, Scott, you just put a huge smile on my face because you ex explained why most of us, why we why we do love our job, because we do have that flexibility to choice and put boundaries. And if you want to step into that role or not, you do have that flexibility to do so. I wish your daughter all the best of luck on her test tomorrow. But I think, you know, if you want to have her come, I'd be happy to have her shadow me as a CRNA. I'm at my rural hospital and she can see a little bit of what, what we do and why we love our job so much. So I want to thank you as my guest. Scott Becker for the new year. I hope your family is safe and healthy and thank everyone for listening in and joining me with this very thoughtful and compelling conversation and see you soon. Thank you. Dr. Wachi, thank you so much. Amazing what you do. Thank you so much.